Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. All right, we want to take our Bibles and turn this morning to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, you'll find it on page 778 as you came into the Sherwood Forest campus right at the entrance. Uh, In the Clemens campus, you will find it underneath your seat or underneath the seat in front of you in those worship Bibles provided, page 778, Micah chapter 4. Now, in this God Unexpected series, uh, we've seen some, some important things. We've seen, first of all, that the God of the Bible shows us who he is and how who he is is not the God we expect. We've seen, secondly, that we human beings habitually remake God. We take the God that is and we remake him into a God that we prefer. And we, we, we take and make God in a kind of buffeteria style by, by taking this that we like and that that we like and leaving some parts of God that we don't like so that we cobble together a God that actually, in the end, it does not exist. We've seen, thirdly, that the God of the Bible is a God of both unexpected love and unexpected justice, that you don't really understand who God is if you're simply uh, looking at God as just a God of love or if you're simply looking at God as just a God of justice. And we've said that God as, as a God of love and a God of justice is not a God who, who, who projects a kind of split image in his character, but actually God's love and God's justice need each other. And the two, when they come together, when we keep them together, it is then that we understand the character of who the God that is truly is. He is not just a God of love, nor is he just a God of justice. He is a God of loving justice. He is a God of just love. And that is very important. We've seen, fourthly, that this God is a God who uses unexpected methods. That of all the different ways that God works, one of the ways that God works is through people for the good of people. God often works through people for the good of people. He certainly wants to work through his people for the good of people, but he will even work through those who are not his people for the good of people and for the advancement of his kingdom and his redemptive purposes. This is especially true, we said, when it comes to leaders. God works through people for people, and he especially works through leaders for people, and that is his heart, his desire, part of his method. We said last week that the God of the Bible also has an unexpected plan. This God who has unexpected methods also has an unexpected plan to take this old world of ours and make it new. That this God who who, uh, is has a plan to take these old lives of ours and make them new. He is a God who takes the old and makes it new. Now, we want to uh, turn this morning 
back to Micah chapter 3, and we want to come back to this passage where we've seen he, he makes a dramatic shift. Micah makes a dramatic shift in his prophecies, in his oracles as a prophet. And uh, where, where up to this point, he, he's been focused almost exclusively on the sin of God's people, on, on their religious failure, on their spiritual failure to try to remake God. He's been focused on the judgment of the consequences that are coming because of their sin, because of, of their attempt to remake God, though he's been focused almost exclusively on that. He, he turns, if you will, rather dramatically, and he looks into a future that is remote, but a future that is just as real as the judgment that God says is coming around the corner for Judah. He says that the day is coming when Judah will be humiliated and Judah will be uh, destroyed, but the day is also coming beyond that day when the humiliated, destroyed Jude, uh, Jerusalem will be raised up and will literally become the, the capital of the world. All of this as part of God's unexpected plan for taking the old and making it new. And in verses 6 through 13, God reveals how he's going to accomplish this. Let's look at that together. In that day, that is in that day when, when Jerusalem is restored, when the old is made new, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make a remnant. Those who are cast off, I will make a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Zion from this time forth and forevermore, for eternity. And you, he's speaking here to Jerusalem, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, but there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, many nations are assembled against you. Now, saying... Let her be defiled. Let her eyes gaze upon Zion, upon its destruction. But they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand. Do you see the word there? His plan. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. And you shall beat in pieces many people and shall devote their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. I want you to see as we come to this passage that God through Micah makes it plain that the sin of his people, that their remaking of him into a God that they prefer rather than receiving him as the God that he is, and his commitment to coming judgment as consequences for these things is not the end of their story, and it is not the end of the story of the world. Micah says God is already uh, in place, a greater plan. It is already at work, and it comes with a greater leader, and consequently, there are good reasons for them to have hope, even though those reasons may not be obvious in the present. 
This is what Micah shows his 8th century hearers, and this is what God's Word shows us today. And so with this passage before us this morning, I want to return one final time to talk with you about the unexpected God's unexpected plan for us and for our world. Now, it seems as if human beings from the earliest times have been asking the question, what will become of us? What will become of us? Uh, it, it never really leaves our minds. Uh, sooner or later, uh, wars break out, tragedy strikes, a plague comes, a tsunami appears, a hurricane barrels through, an earthquake shakes buildings to rubble, and, and we can't help but wonder, will we make it? And this is true even today with all of our technological advances and, and all of our wealth it, it, these things that we trust in, the reality is that uh, even with increased technological power and even with, with great wealth, neither one of these things actually gives us any greater security about the future. In fact, rather than giving us security in the future, they create a real uncertainty about the future. When it comes to the future, here's the reality. We're plagued by uncertainty. We live as human beings with the anticipation of things we can't anticipate. We live as human beings with the anticipation of things we can't anticipate. Um, can I just put it in, in, in common terms? We worry. Any worriers here? Anybody raised by worriers? Anybody raising worriers? Anybody got a whole family of worriers? Trying to anticipate the unanticipatable. All right, write that down in your notes. You can spell check that later. We live with the anticipation of things we can't anticipate. And while secular psychologists and sociologists tell us that the key to improving human happiness is finding ways to make people feel more secure about their future, the reality is no one knows just how to do that. It's proving harder than we expected. I'm still, I'm still trying to, to get my mind around the, the fact that in America, in the United States, right here, right now, with all of the technological uh, advantages we have and abilities we have and with all the wealth that we have, I mean, honestly, the, the poorest among us are still wealthier than most of the people on the planet. That with all of this, we are still, as a nation, struggling with the future. And one of the greatest proofs of it is our suicide rate. From 1999 through 2017, the age-adjusted suicide rate increased 33% in the United States. Since 2008, suicide is ranked as the 10th leading cause of death for all ages in the United States. And in 2016, it became the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 through 34. 
And what that tells us, what that says to us is that we are losing hope for the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've, got, we've got technology and, and, and we've got wealth, more wealth than others, but we aren't happy. We're incredibly insecure because we're incredibly uncertain about what tomorrow actually holds. Hope is in short supply. And so when we're not mesmerized and distracted by technology and our stuff and our busyness and and we pause finally to see for a moment life as it really, really is, we are absolutely compelled to ask, is there any real hope for our world? Is there any real hope for us? Is there any real hope for me? And inevitably, we want to ask the question, what is God's plan for us and this world? And Micah gives us an extraordinary gift because Micah actually allows us to ask an even better question. Micah allows us to ask, what is the unexpected God's unexpected plan for us in this world? What is God up to that we don't necessarily see, that we can't necessarily know on our own? What is the unexpected God's unexpected plan for us and this world? And what Micah shows us is that this unexpected God does have a plan for this world. It is unexpected. It comes with three distinct promises. And these three distinct promises give us a great hope in a world where hope is just hard to find. Last week, we looked into the future through the lens of the first promise, and that is God's promise to make the old new. And what I, what I, what I shared with you was this principle And we see it uh, repeated elsewhere in the Bible. But it is a principle that says if you're going to face the future with courage and with confidence, the only way you're going to be able to do that is by looking through the lens of God's promises for the future. There are a lot of lenses you can look through look through in anticipation of what is coming, but there's only a certain set of lenses that will allow you to look through them and look through them with confidence. Those lenses are the promises of God, and Micah points us to three. We saw last week that one of the lenses through which we are to look through uh, and, and see and anticipate the future is the lens of God's promise that one day he's going to take the old and make it new. One day he's going to take the old and and make it new. What is now will not always be. I want us to go on today and look at uh, the uh, other major set of promises, particularly the first one. In Micah chapter 4, God goes on to make the promise that he's going to make in the future the rejected accepted, and he's going to make the defeated victorious. He's going to make the rejected accepted, and he's going to make the defeated victorious. Now, I want us to focus as we close out this this portion of the series on the first one, God's promise to make the rejected accepted. And so we're going to focus particularly today on Micah 4, 6, 7, and 8. Micah 4, 6, 7, and 8. 
uh, God's promise to make the rejected accepted. In that day, let's look at it, that again, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who have been driven away. I, I will gather those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, I will make of them a strong nation. And the Lord... I will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Now, here's what I want you to see as we dive into this promise. Micah shows us here how God's unexpected plan is unexpectedly personal. God's unexpected plan is unexpectedly personal. Uh, it, it is personal on two levels. It is personal first on the level that God himself is going to be directly involved in our future. And it's personal on a second level in that the future that God has planned, he has planned with people in mind, with us personally in mind. And so his, his plan, his future plan is deeply personal, personal because he's involved, personal because his plans involve us. Now this is unexpected because of what God demonstrates in terms of his character. If we were honest, the vast majority, if not all of us, if someone else rejects us, if someone else neglects us, if someone else hurts us, if someone else offends us, we withdraw from them, we stay at a distance from them, and then we leave them. And that's really what we would expect God to do with humanity. Step away, keep a distance, stay at a distance, and never reapproach. That's not what God does. He says, I'm going to be in the future, I'm going to be personally involved. And my plan not only involves my personal involvement, it involves your personal involvement. I'm going to give you an invitation. I'm going to give you an opportunity when it comes to the future. And knowing this, remember now, knowing this is, is one of the ways in which uh, God calls us to look through to our futures, that, un that, that, that unanticipatable future that we have. This is a lens that, we're, that allows us to look through that future and have courage and have confidence as we move forward into it. Now, there's some key words in this passage that I want you to see with me. Notice how God describes his own people. Lame, verse six. Driven away, afflicted, afflicted by me. These are all descriptions of the results of the nation's sins and their consequences. They're going to see their homeland taken. They're going to be exiled, he tells us later. They're going to be afflicted with slavery and separation by God himself through their enemies. But of all these terms, lame here is an especially important one. Do you see it? It's a rare word in the uh, Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the same word used to describe the condition that God personally, watch now, God personally gave to Jacob in Genesis 32. Do you remember the story of Jacob and God wrestling? Do you remember that story? They are wrestling, and the scripture says uh, in the middle of that, that incredible, incredible struggle, God touches or lames in the Hebrew, he lames the hip of Jacob. He lames Jacob. He lames Jacob. 
What, what we've got here is a very subtle pointer to that experience and a very important one. In the same way that God struggled with Jacob, Jacob was not where he was, was supposed to be. He was not aimed at what he should, was supposed to be aimed at. And God had to intervene and lame him in order, watch this, not simply to bless Jacob, but to make Jacob a blessing to the nations. In the same way that God had to do that with Jacob, he's having to do that with his own people here. God is personally laming or breaking his rebellious people in Judah so that he can personally use them to bless the world in that remote future day that is also coming after Jerusalem's destruction and their exile. Notice verse 8, this future day is a day when God himself will reign over them and watch over them from his tower of the flock on Jerusalem's hill, and he will do it as their king. And it is in this way that God, and this is so important though, rejecting his people because of their rejection of him, also works to do something else for them. He takes and he breaks them so that he can once again accept them and use them. He takes and he breaks them so that he can accept them and use them. Now, this is a powerful picture. In fact, he describes it. Go back to verse 6. He describes it here. He says, I'm going to assemble the lame, those that I've touched, I've broken, and gather those who have been driven away, those who have been rejected by me, and those whom I have afflicted. They're all the same group. I've lamed them, I've rejected them, and I've, uh, I've afflicted them. I'm going to make them a remnant, verse 7. I'm going to, uh, those who were cast off, those whom I rejected because they rejected me, I'm going to make a strong nation, and I will reign over them. This is a powerful picture of the way God works. God rejects those who reject him. This is true. But that isn't all the truth there is. After we reject him and... He rejects us. And, and, and why, why does he reject us? Because we reject him, because we reject his purpose for us. Uh, all right, here comes a test. Uh, you've been at this for 13 years or less, depending on how long you've been as, at Center Grove. You see, God rejects us when we reject him because what we've rejected is something that he aims to give us. God works to give us not happiness. He aims to give us what? 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 Holiness. Joy's good. We'll take joy. But first and foremost, what God is working for is our... You can say it. It's okay. Yeah? Let's, let's try it. He's, he's working not for our happiness, but for our holiness. That's what God is after. And when we reject it, and see, the God that we want, the God that we remake, the God that we refashion inevitably is a God who is always working for our happiness, not the God who is, who is working for our holiness. This is very hard, isn't it? Okay, everybody gets an A plus for trying. But I want you to get that, I want you to get that in your heart and in your mind. What God is working for, what God is aiming for is not your happiness. 
He is aiming for your holiness. That is his objective because, because when you and I are holy, we are able to enter into and stay in a living relationship with him. And it is in that living relationship with him that we find our joy, that we find our peace, that we find our rest, that we find our purpose, that we find our direction. So really what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to give us all of the things that ultimately will make us happy by first giving us what makes us holy. There you go. There you go. That is the way God works. But He works to do something else. When God works to make the rejected accepted, He also goes on to work to break them so that He can remake them. before he can accept us and gather us as his own, before he can make us faithful to himself and, and faithful once and for all, for eternity, he has to take us and he has to break us. So God's plan includes an unexpected personal promise. He will come. He will be king rejecting humanity and especially his own people, but then finally and eternally offering acceptance to them. And this breaking of his people will be painful. But their return to him and his reign are vital if the blessing that God has for them and that God has for the rest of the world is ever to be realized. It's in this way, verse 8, that Jerusalem's dominion is going to be restored. It is, it is, this is the only way that God will be restored to their lives in his rightful place as king. The application here is as unexpected as God's promise is to accept the rejected. So too, the way he does that, that he unexpectedly must lame or break us before he can truly use us. Now, we don't like that, and a lot of us have, have got a wrong view of God because we very inevitably, we almost inevitably will say, when there's a breaking time in our lives, when there's a hard time in our lives, when we're going through a struggle, whatever, it, it's kind, shape, or form, or, or, or whatever, we inevitably want to say, God, where are you? Why have you let me down? And see, underneath that is the idea, God, you're supposed to be making me happy, and I'm not really happy right now. I'm miserable right now. I'm hurting right now. I'm disappointed right now. <laughs> Where are you? You're supposed to be making me happy. But all I'm going through is an affliction time. What I'm going through is a breaking time. And it causes us to 
to rise up and oftentimes become very angry with God and to fight him just like Jacob. in the midst of our breaking time. Now, there are some reasons that God has to do this. There are some reasons why God has to lame us or break us before he can truly use us. He's got to lame us somehow, first of all, to show us our limits. One of our, our constant reoccurring habits as human beings is we try to live as if we have no limits. And when you're living, watch this now, loved ones, when you're living in, in, a, in a culture and in a society where you've got lots of technological power and ability and when you've got wealth more than others do, you can begin to think that you can live without many, if, uh, if any, limits. And the more tech and the more wealth you have, the greater this temptation can be. There are times when God, in order, watch now, to break a man or woman or to break a, 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 a student, has to, has to break them in order to, to, to save them. He, he's got to bring them to a place where they understand their very real limits. That there, is, there are times in our lives, even for believers, when God has to come and he has to break us so that we realize afresh, I do have limits. I, I'm not the source of my life. I'm not the reason for my life. I, I, every breath I take comes from him. Every dollar I make comes from him. Every meal I actually enjoy comes from him. You say, oh, I've got a job. Yes. And the strength and the mind that you have to carry out that work, they all come from him. You have absolutely nothing that you gave yourself except headaches and consequences. Now that's good. Write that down. I'll try to remember it third service. (laughs) But it is true. The only thing that we have given ourselves our headaches and consequences. God has to break us in order to show us or to remind us of our limits. God has to break us to show us our radical need of him and our radical dependence on him. He's got to break us. And the best way I know how to portray this for you is this is that, that when God is ready to do a work in a life, when he's ready to, to bring new life to a person who's living in an old life, when he's ready to take a believer to a new level in, in their walk or their relationship with Christ, his, his activity, his unexpected activity is, is very, very similar. He, he, he works to break them so that he can pour them out. And having poured them out, then pour himself in. As the God of life, this is the only way we come to have and experience life. The joy, the peace, the rest. He has to break us to pour us out, to pour self out, all of that 
that causes us to live unholy, unsatisfied lives to pour us out so that he might pour himself in and in pouring himself in, give us the life he intended for us to have. He's got to break us. To cleanse us of me and fill us with himself. This is why John the Baptist, that great, great man, said, quite frankly, he got this principle. He said, quite frankly, I, I must become less he must become more. More of me poured out, more of him poured in. Less of me, more of you. But it only comes from breaking times. It's once he has broken us and poured us out, it's then that he's able to pour himself into us and then use us for his glory and for the good of others and for our own good as well. And so what I want to say to you this morning is whatever you do when you're going through a difficult time, a hard time, a frightening time, when you're going through a disappointing time, don't fight the breaking. Don't fight the breaking. Don't fight the breaking. So many times God comes and he needs to break us because we've got too much of us, too much self, too much selfishness. We, we've got the wrong ambitions. We've got the wrong desires. We've got the wrong focus. And God knows it and he loves us too much to leave all of that in us and he comes to break us. And we want to fight him in that breaking process. We want to charge him with being unfaithful and we want to charge him with not keeping his promises. But I want to say to you, when God comes to break you or God comes to break me, he's coming to fulfill this promise. He wants to take the rejected and make them accepted. He, he wants to take that, that, that broken person whose life has no direction, pour them out and pour himself in. He pours that. Watch, this is such a beautiful picture. This is such a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture of the cross. Because this is exactly what happened on Golgotha, on Calvary's Hill. Do you remember the cross? What was happening there? God was breaking his own son pouring out his righteousness, filling his life up with our sin so that his righteousness could be available to us with our self poured out so that Christ might be poured in. This is the way God works. 
It's the way he works when he brings someone to new life in his son. It's the way he works when he's calling back a, a wayward son or a wayward daughter. Breaks, pours out, fills up. Don't fight the breaking. You can actually run from it if you're not careful. God may allow some things into your life and he wakes you up or he's trying to wake you up. He's saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, and you're not paying attention. You're fighting him in his breaking. You think you found a workaround. You, you think you've, you've uh, made your way around some breaking that you know needs to come. In your heart of hearts, you know it needs to come. You, you don't want it. You say, I'll fix it myself. God says, no, 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 no. You got to be broken. There's got to be a breaking. You're never going to get that self out of there until you're broken. Don't fight the breaking. It's one of his strangest, most unexpected gifts God ever gives. Don't fight it. Seek to understand it. Don't fight it. Seek to own its value. Seek to own its benefit. When a person comes to genuine faith, there's always a breaking. When God wants to take the ordinary lives of believers and make them extraordinary in Christ, there is always a breaking. When he wants to take an ordinary church and make it extraordinary in Christ, there is always a breaking. Let me say that the story of Center Grove is a story of a church that had to go through a breaking. We had to go through a breaking, and it was painful. I came at just the tail end of it, but I saw the, the consequences of it. And there were a lot of people saying, Center Grove will never make it. She will never survive. She will never thrive again. And in truth, this church would never have survived or thrived again if she had decided she would wrestle with God and not let him do what he needed to do, but she did. And some of you are here today, and some of you have found new life in Christ, and some of you have found a place to grow because somebody 13 years ago said, all right, you've lamed us. I'm not going to wrestle with you anymore. This is the way God works. And every ordinary life, we like to say at Center Grove that our, our vision is to see ordinary people and families find extraordinary life in Jesus together. The only way that the ordinary becomes extraordinary is when there is an openness and a willingness to let God do the breaking that needs to be done so that the self is poured out and he is poured in. There are some marriages in this room that need to be broken. Now, I don't mean divorce. That's not what I said. Don't you go out and say, he said we could do this. Don't you misquote me. But there are some, some marriages, some old marriages that need to be broken. They aren't working because there's too much self in those marriages. There are some lives in this room that are not working because there's too much you in the middle of your living. 
There's some families that are not working because they haven't been broken. Don't fight it. See its value and its benefit whenever God is ready to do something extraordinary out of the, make something extraordinary out of the ordinary, he always starts with breaking. One of the most powerful passages in all the Word of God is found in Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 11. It describes how God works in this way even among his children. And it puts to rest this notion that, oh, God, I thought, you know, my, my life was supposed to be incredible after I came to know you. No problems, no pain. Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 11 says, the writer says to his first century hearers, in your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You, you, you've not had a, an all-out war against sin and self in you. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard the discipline of the Lord. Don't disregard uh, or do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those that he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that, that you have to endure. When God disciplines you, when he lames you, when he touches you, when he breaks you, when he moves you through that process, he is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then Here's the truth about you. You're an illegitimate child and not a son of God. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us, God the Father disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This is a powerful passage because essentially what it says is this, if you can, uh, if you can sin and get away with it, there's no breaking There's no breaking. If you have sin and there's no breaking, there's no sonship. You're playing a game. If you can be, if you can be full of self and get away with it, no discipline, no chastisement, you're not even in the family. Oh, I know, you got your birth certificate, and you, you shook the pastor's right hand. I, I know that. And you got your baptismal certificate, and, and, you, and I know, I know, you prayed that, that, that magic prayer. I know, I know. But you can sin, 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 sin. Natural consequences come, but there's no discipline from God. 
Yeah, there's no sonship. Just foolishness. Because, and this is so strange, one of the greatest proofs that you belong to Christ is that you can't get away with anything. And when you, when you get off the path and you start living for yourself again, one of the greatest joys and delights is getting that, uh, that correction from the Father. Now, it's painful and it hurts. But at the end of the day, it says, you're mine and you're not supposed to act that way. Now, I might be with you at, what is it, 10 little monkeys, that place for you take your kids and they've got a bounce house. I may go in there with my grandchildren. Your kid may be acting like the Dickens. I'm not going to say a thing to, to your child. The only thing I'm going to say to my grandkids is, stay away from that kid. <laughs> that kid can set the building on fire. I don't care. I will just get out and y'all deal with it. But I'm not going to correct your kid. That's not my kid. But if you belong to me, that's different. You're mine. And I expect you to act just like your grandmother. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not good if they act like the grandfather. Just stay with the grandmother part. Yeah, that's probably better. You see the difference? See the difference? Paul warned Timothy about this and because Paul knew that God had an extraordinary life for Timothy to live. And by the way, I want to remind you one more time. God has an extraordinary life for you to live. If you are his, he has an extraordinary life for you to live. I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I, I don't care what gifts you have. I don't care what gifts you don't have. I don't care. If you belong to Jesus, he has for you an extraordinary life to live. It's not just for Timothy. It's for you. I mean that. Part of the adventure of this life is finding out what kind of extraordinary life God has for me to live. And there's no greater joy. I keep coming back to joy. I'm so glad you came today. Joy. There's no greater joy than finding that extraordinary life God created you to live. And he put you in the 21st century. He put you here now. No greater joy than that. Paul, knowing that this was also true of Timothy, gave him this word of warning, 2 Timothy 2, 20 to 21, my favorite passage. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone, anyone cleanses himself or herself from what is dishonorable, gets rid of self, gets rid of sin by allowing God to break them, if anyone cleanses himself or herself from what is dishonorable, that person will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work, ready for an extraordinary life. It all starts with the breaking and a pouring out and filling up. And ultimately, this is how God makes the rejected accepted. And those who are poured out of self and filled up with Him, this is how they become a blessing to the world. This is God's unexpected plan. This is God's unexpected gift. He's got to break you if He's ever going to use you. If you're ever going to make an eternity's worth of difference, you've got to be broken before it can happen. What is the unexpected God's unexpected plan for us in this world? God's unexpected plan for us is to break us so that He might bless us and through us bless the world. It's the broken who bring a blessing. It's the broken who bring a blessing. You want to bless your marriage? You want to bless your family? You want to bless this community? It's the broken who can bring the blessing. So what's it going to be for you? Ordinary? Or extraordinary? Fighting? We're breaking. Your marriage, your family, your children, your future. What you will do, what you won't do, all rest. And what happens when God comes and takes hold of your life? There's some stuff in you that needs to come out. There's some places in your life he needs to come in. Let him break you. Looking at the future, 
when I know this is how God works. I know when I look at the future of my life, there's some hurt coming. There's some pain coming. I, I can't anticipate it any more than that. But what I also know is that whatever comes into my life that threatens to break me, God will use not just to bless me, but to bless others. And that gives me courage and that gives me confidence going into an uncertain future. The blessing just comes from the breaking. So, Father, all across this room, we, we bow in your presence and we hear this word, this strange gift, this incredible, incredibly odd gift, this gift that we don't expect, that you would choose to, to break us before you bless us, that you would choose to break us before you use us and make us a blessing to others. You would choose to pour that... Um, rotting, stinking mess of us and selfishness out in order to pour the, the life-giving, healthy, vibrant uh, life that you are into our lives. God, there are some lives that need to be broken here today. Some marriages, some families some dreams that need to be broken and poured out and filled with yours. Here today, Father God, you are king over the flood of every flood that comes. You are master over every storm. You use them all for your glory, for the blessing of others and for our own. Grant in this time, this moment, Lord, that you would not find us fighting you. That you would find us letting you break us. For the sake of your glory and the good of the world. For those in this room who've never been broken, never come to new life in Jesus, oh, Father God, I pray that they would see the costs, the consequences, that living and doing life their way has brought to them and that today would be a day of surrender, seeing the death of Jesus on the cross as being for them, his being poured out, being so that they might be filled up with his new life and given a new relationship with you today. Father, let today be the day they step over the line of faith and give their lives to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand together all across the room. I'll ask our prayer partners to take their place. This is an invitation for the broken. This is an invitation for those who need breaking. Ladies, we have ladies for you to pray with and men, men for you to pray with. Or we have just, just space for you to come and pray.
God's spoken to some folks here today. There is a breaking he wants to do. The question is, will you let him do it? Probably the most powerful thing you can do is slip out from where you are, come forward and just kneel down and say, Lord, break me. Break me in this place. I'm too full of myself. Break me in this place. I'm too full of sin. Break me in this place. Break me. And then break my heart with what breaks yours. There's no peace, friends. There's no peace until your soul finds its rest in Him. No peace for a marriage, for a family until the souls there find their rest in Him. I invite you to come as we sing this prayer song of response. You come. We'll meet you here or just come and pray. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, just take one of these partners by the hand and say, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. We'll take you out just into the foyer just for a moment. We'll pray with you and help you make that step. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.